Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I haven't done one of these live stream Q&As in quite some time, so I thought I would go live and do that today. So if you guys want to queue in here and uh, just shoot some questions out, we'll kind of have a back and forth and see what's going on here. Just have a little conversation. All right. So it looks like we've got a question from Jas Kirat Singh. We'll call him Mr. Singh. So question, the recession will be delayed uh, because the Fed has raised too quickly, but the Fed corporate debt average uh, 2% and nominal GDS being around uh, uh, GDS being around 6%, they can still afford interest payments. Okay, I think maybe that's more of a, a statement. And uh, yeah, so I think what you're saying there is the recession, in your view, is likely delayed because of uh, corporate debt them being in a, a decent position there. And yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of factors that go into it. You know, I was, uh, I responded to uh, a tweet from my good friend, Daniel DiMartino Booth, that was talking about kind of, you know, no one's in the recession camp anymore. And I said that because people think that, oh, that yield curve, it must be invalid. It must be dead because it started to predict a uh, recession, you know, months ago, and we haven't seen a recession. So this time it must be different. When if, if you actually just go back and look at history, you see that this time it's not different. This cycle is playing out the way every single cycle, pretty much <laughs> not everyone, but the majority of them have played out before. And that is that, you know, prior, just prior to the recession, you get uh, the unemployment rate being very low. You get stocks going up assets. You know, you get this narrative that uh, this time it's different and that, you know, there's pretty much ignoring the yield curve. I mean, one really cool thing, that I was able to do a couple weeks ago was get access to archived editions of the Wall Street Journal. And specifically, I wanted to go back and read about the 1940s and actually read in real time, you know, what was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? What were they talking about in 1947 when the headline CPI got to 19%? What were they talking about two years later when it got down to negative two? What were they talking about when World War II? What were they talking about with price controls? And with the Federal Reserve, you know, doing yield curve control. I wanted to read about it in, in real time. But one of the things that I noticed in looking at uh, Wall Street journals from the dot-com bust prior to that recession in 2001 and the GFC is that they were saying the exact same things that they're saying today. It was no different. And if you look at how when a yield curve inverts and how long it usually takes for them uh, – well, it takes even longer for them to announce the recession, but for the recession to even start, it's usually at least 18 months. And it doesn't happen until the curve is no longer inverted. So to, it just makes no sense to me that this time it's different when we're seeing it play out exactly. It's like before these people assume, and we're talking about quote unquote experts. It's like these people assume that as soon as the yield curve inverts, that the stock market just crashes and if it doesn't crash, well, then obviously this time it's different. No, it never does that. It never does that. We never really see the stuff hit the fan until the curve is no longer inverted. That's the way it plays out over and over and over and over again. But just because it's playing out that way this time, people ignore history and assume that it's different. And it's not. It's not. So my point there is, yeah, there's a lot of factors that are delaying the recession. But I don't. is it really delayed? I mean, we really won't know that if it's delayed, I would say that if you don't have a recession or the stuff hitting the fan um, before like Q2 
or so of 2024, then I would say it's delayed. But right now, we're, if it happened now, it, we, it would actually be early relative to what has happened in the past when you get that inversion of the curve. And But to your point, there's like millions of variables uh, that we should consider. And, and what you mentioned there with corporate debt is definitely one of them. Okay, we've got, uh, looks like unvaxxed, no mask Ed <laughs> was just listening to the story that I told on the Rebel Capitalist channel. And that's why I'm, uh, thanks for, for listening there, Ed. You could tell it's a, it was kind of a tough story for, for a lot of reasons. It's, it, that was tough. So thanks for listening. Okay, can you tell us why you don't live in the U.S.? Well, um, so I retired in 2012 and uh, I, I didn't have a, 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 you know, I wasn't a billionaire or anything like that, but I had enough money saved to where if I just made like a five or 6% return, I wouldn't have to go back to work unless I wanted to. And that's actually what, when I got into real estate investing, as most of you know, and I was able to do pretty well there. And uh, within a, a, I can't remember, maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that, I was able to build a big enough real estate portfolio where I had enough rental income, positive cash flow coming in to where it almost covered my bills. I'm like, this is fantastic. Now I can, I can do nothing if I want. I can go back. It really, I came to the conclusion that, hey, you know what? This is really cool because it buys me time to figure out the next thing that I want to do, if anything at all, because I'm not drawing down by my savings with my monthly expenses. So anyway, what this, my point here is this allowed me to travel a lot. Now I had traveled to several countries uh, prior with a, a variety of different businesses that I had before retiring. And so at this time I had been to probably at least 20 countries or so, but it allowed me to travel even more and determine if there was some place that I really enjoyed or maybe better investment opportunities for real estate. This is probably, I don't know, maybe 2013, maybe the end, uh, something like that. And so I, ended up going down to Ecuador. And then in 2014, I came to Colombia to Medellin for an investment opportunity because oil was cheap. I didn't know anything about oil, but I knew it was loosely tied or peso was loosely tied to oil, knew about real estate. So I bought peso denominated real estate thinking, okay, I can force equity there and that'll be my buffer. That'll be my hedge. I can have some positive cash flow. And then uh, assuming oil does go up and the peso appreciates with it, then I'll kind of be the, the double whammy. That's how I'll express that bet with a little bit of a hedge. And the more time I spent in Medellin, the more I liked it. I originally just came here for an investment opportunity, but you fall in love with the weather and the people and the salsa dancing and the music and the vibrancy and the energy and all these things about it. And it's just, uh, just the more time I spent here, the more I enjoyed it, not just from a standpoint of investing, but really lifestyle. But I continued to travel because I want to keep my options open. You guys know that I'm always looking for a plan B and a plan C. And so I've continued to travel to other countries. Now I'm up at around 45, maybe even a little bit more than 45. And I've gone to pretty much the nicest countries that, well, I, what I think would be the nicest countries to go to and potentially a place to, uh, you know, spend some time. And I cannot find a place anywhere. Not, not the Middle East, not Asia, not South America, not North America, not Europe, nowhere. I cannot find a place that I like better than Medellin. So the story really isn't just about why I don't live in the States. It's really more so why do I live in Medellin? <laughs> uh, because that, that's really it in a nutshell. Now, right, as far as the United States, got a lot of problems. 
And uh, if I did live in the States, I would want to live in, in Florida or Texas for obvious reasons. But uh, that's, I guess, why I live in Medellin. I guess hopefully that answers why I don't live in the States. Although that said, you know, even if I'd never been to Medellin, I'm just thinking this through out loud. If I lived in the States, I would probably be consider spending a lot of my time outside of the United States, even if I'd never traveled, just because of the kind of fourth turning stuff and what I think is going to be continued or increasing amounts of social unrest. Oh, and by the way, one thing I'm really concerned with is being unbanked. I don't know if you guys heard that story. I, did, I talked about it on the Rebel Capitalist channel with uh, Nigel Farage and how he was basically unbanked. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. I'm like, okay, even if you figure out a way to navigate like a CBDC, you still are, are going to have to have a bank. If you're a normal person, you're still going to have to have a bank account just to get paid from your employer. And, you know, it's, it's very unlikely that you can find an employer within the next, you know, three or four years prior to a CBDC coming out that's going to be will, willing to pay you under the table or pay you in gold or pay you in Bitcoin or something like that. So assuming that you can't find an employer like that, you have to have a bank account. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's part of being in today's society, especially in the West, in the developed uh, economies. So I got to thinking, you know, how, how, what would I do? And the answer is you've got to be diversified with your bank accounts. You've got to. You, at, at, there has never been a point in history where it's more important to have bank accounts outside of the United States, assuming you're an American citizen, than right now, in my opinion. I think I had this question on uh, uh, the Rebel Capitalist Pro live stream last weekend, and they were saying, you know what, I'd say I would immediately set up an account in Dubai, as an example, immediately. And then i just keep, you know, a, a small portion of, of money there, whatever you feel comfortable with. And then I'd set up a few other bank accounts. Even if you don't have residency there, visa, forget that stuff. Just for heaven's sakes, diversify your political jurisdictions or your political risk. And so I think that's, I know you didn't ask that question specifically, but I think that's something important, really important for people to, to, to start thinking about. Why is the peso so strong against the dollar? I don't know. I'd have to understand what they're doing with interest rates in Mexico. And I, I have no clue. I know that in the United States, one of the reasons the dollar is going down on the DXY is because of future perceived interest rate differentials. So the Fed has paused while at the same time the ECB is still raising rates. Well, I guess the Fed raised rates just the other day, didn't they? Well, but the Fed paused and you know the market was getting the vibe that the Fed was going to maybe pause and, and go back down a little bit sooner. Maybe we've got uh, inflation that's a, a little bit more under control here. And therefore, the idea with the markets is, oh, well, this central bank, let's say the ECB, is going to continue to raise rates because of X, Y, Z reason. And the Fed is most likely going to pause or maybe just raise one more time because, you know, inflation has come down from nine to three, core inflation coming down. Uh, we've got this disinflationary trend. All of these reasons, the Fed will most likely pause or stay low where the ECB is probably going to continue to raise rates. Japan just came out and kind of fiddled with their yield curve for control, which would lead you to believe that they're leaning a little more hawkish, even though the rates are still far lower than the United States. It, it's what's, um, where's the trend going, right? And so, I mean, I would have to look at the interest rates for the Mexican, I don't even know what their central bank is called. Hmm, that's something I should know. But whatever the Mexican central bank is, I don't, I would assume that they're raising rates or they're in that same position as an ECB or a Japan where the market perceives them as being a little more hawkish 
where they uh, the market is perceiving the Fed to be a little more dovish, relatively speaking. And that's why you're seeing that uh, that uh, differential. That's why you're seeing the peso appreciate slightly against the dollar. From what I've seen, and I'm no FX expert by by any means, but from what I've seen, kind of the short-term uh, movements in uh, currencies is, is really kind of interest rate differentials and uh, at least with the dollar. Then longer term, there's there's you know millions and millions and millions of variables. Short term, there is too, but that seems to be the one that kind of has the most weight. Do I think the liquidity created by the Treasury tapping RRP, the fund TGA and shadow bank balance will continue? If so, how does this uh, anticipate liquidity? I don't think it affects anything, Brandon. I mean, it's a great question because I applaud you for actually thinking about the plumbing. Very few people do this, even experts. But to me, this is not a big driver of liquidity. So just so we're all on the same page here, what Brandon's talking about is you've got, I don't know what it is, a trillion, I think maybe over 2 trillion even, was in the RRP. So that's basically bank reserves that are not in the banking system. There's really three main components of the Fed's balance sheet, the liability side. You've got the bank reserves that are the assets of the commercial bank. We've got the TGA, which is the checking account for Janet Yellen, the treasury. And then we've got RRP, which is reverse repo, which is really kind of a place where these money market funds kind of park uh, their cash, for lack of a better word. So when the money market fund parks their cash there, they take those bank reserves from the banking system and move them down into reverse repo. And then when Janet Yellen wants to fill out the TGA, let's say we get the debt ceiling behind us, then she starts to issue all these T-bills. She issues five or six hundred billion worth of T-bills and the Money market fund managers look at that and say, oh, wow, I can get 10% or excuse me, 10 basis points more than I can get reverse repo. Yeah, let me go ahead and buy those treasuries. And then what that does is moves the bank reserves from reverse repo into the TGA. Well, Janet Yellen most likely over time will spend that money. And when she does, those bank reserves go back into the banking system where they started. So that's why Brendan is talking about this uh, additional liquidity above and beyond where we are at this point in time. Now, the reason I don't think that's a big driver, Brendan, is because the banks can create as much liquidity as they want. The banks, they don't need bank reserves to lend. So one of the biggest mistakes I see people make, even the quote unquote experts out there, is to assume that somehow by the banks having more bank reserves, then this increases their balance sheet capacity to go ahead and lend and then they lend to hedge fund managers and then the hedge fund managers have that extra money. So then they go buy stocks and then they lever up and then the stock market goes up and blah, 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 blah. Look, the banks, if, if the banks want to lend to a hedge fund manager to go buy stocks, they, they don't need more reserves to do that. I mean, let me just give you a couple statistics. In 1980, the amount of bank reserves in the system was 40 billion, 40 with a B. M2 money supplies was 1.5 trillion. Fast forward to 2007, right before the GFC and QE and all this nonsense, the amount of bank reserves in the system was 40 billion, the exact same number. Nothing had changed. But M2 money supply went from 1.5 trillion up to 7.5 trillion. 1.5 to 7.5. And that doesn't even include the amount of dollars that increased in the euro dollar system outside of the United States. I mean, I have no way to know for sure but just based on global GDP and the dollar being 60, 70% of settlement, you would assume that 
you know, kind of ballpark, the amount of dollars outside the United States would be roughly equivalent to like maybe 50 or 60% of global GDP nominal. So right now, global GDP is 110, 120, something like that. So you got to figure there's 60, 70 trillion at least, <laughs> at least in dollars, in dollars that have been created how? By the Fed? By the the the, the government? By money printer go burr? No, no. Those dollars were created by the banks, just lending them into existence. And most of the banks and most of the dollars that were created by the banks that equal that 70 trillion were created with no reserves, none, nada, no green pieces of paper, no reserves, nothing. You say, George, well, how on earth could they do that? Well, simple. If they had to transfer their dollar liability to another bank, then that bank would just extend them credit or they would just draw down their account and then boom, the transaction settled. You don't need the Fed. You don't need green pieces of paper, nothing. You just need this global network of banks. So my point is in 2007, let's just assume for a moment that the amount of dollars outside of the United States was, was 20 trillion. So you got 7.5 here. So let's just say 40 trillion combined. That's with 40, 40, 40 billion in bank reserves. So you got 40 trillion in dollars created. <laughs> <laughs> with 40 billion in bank reserves. How can you look at that and say that the Fed has anything to do with liquidity? The banks create their own liquidity. Now, where the Fed comes into play is from a psychological standpoint, in my opinion. So like if the Fed comes in, and my good friend Lynn Alden always makes this point, in 2008 and bails out the system, by doing QE, taking the, the toxic garbage off their balance sheet, replacing it with the reserves. Do they prevent the system from collapsing? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely. So in that case, liquidity is much higher than it would have been because liquidity would have dropped down to zero because the whole banking system would have imploded, you see? But that's not a result of not having enough reserves. That's a result of them making bad loans to begin with. If they wouldn't have made those bad loans to begin with, then they wouldn't have need the, needed the Fed to come in and increase the amount of reserves. So now let's fast forward to 2023. If, uh, if the market mentality, if sentiment is positive, if it's risk on, even if the Fed is reducing the size of the balance sheet, or even if the amount of reserves are decreasing, as long as the psychology is risk on, you're going to see the stock market go up. There's going to be plenty of liquidity for banks or, or hedge fund managers or anybody. But as soon as you see the stuff hit the fan, regardless of what the Fed does with their balance sheet for liquidity, the market's still going to go down. There's going to be no liquidity. So my point is not that the Fed doesn't matter at all because at certain times they do, but the majority of the time they don't. The majority of the time, the real players are the global networks of banks. They are the sun in the monetary solar system and the Fed just revolves around them. It's not vice versa. So again, to answer your question, Brandon, because it's a great question, I would say first you have to start by asking what overall market sentiment is. And if sentiment is positive, then I don't think what they're doing on the Fed's balance sheet really matters at all. Or if it's overwhelmingly positive, if it's overwhelmingly negative, you know, then uh, I don't think it, it really matters too much at all. The only thing that it matters is I think from a standpoint of just instilling confidence in the market 
it isn't necessarily a mechanics question. It's more so a psychological question. So do you think Fed will keep interest rates high and just continue to bail out failing bank? Uh, if so, what effects would that have on the dollar? Yeah, it's a good question, Nathan. It, I think it really depends on the severity of the the landing or whatever the yield curve is predicting. So if we go back to, so actually, let me go back a little further than that. I was just going to go back to 2020, but let's go all the way back to the mid-90s. That was the last time that the Fed raised rates, paused, and then started to drop rates again. Or did they start to drop rates? I know they raised rates in mid-90s. They paused, and we didn't get a recession. I can't recall if the next move was up or down. I think it was down, but I'm not positive. So that's the only time when the Fed has paused over the last like 40, 50 years where we didn't get a recession, but there was no inversion of the curve. The Fed has never paused with an inversion of the curve without us getting a recession. You see, so the question is really, what does that look like? If it looks, now let's go to 2020. If that looks like March of 2020, look, the the Fed isn't going to keep rates high. There's no way. (laughs) There's no way. They're going to drop rates straight back down to zero the exact same playbook and they're going to try to add liquidity quote unquote just like they did in march but remember what happened for those of you who are watching my channel i'm sure you remember like this like it was yesterday the fed came out they're supposed to meet on wednesday they had an emergency meeting on sunday night and they dropped rates my memory serves me right from one percent down to zero and they came out and announced qe infinity they said that they're going to commit to up to one trillion dollars a day in repo all of these things and what did the market do the next day crashed down by like 1500 points and it continued to crash. Well, how the fed was injecting liquidity. (laughs) You see what I mean? What happened is the market said, fed, you can take your balance sheet to infinity and beyond. And we don't care because this is an overriding factor. The surveillance sickness. What happened is the government had to come out and do their cares act before it calmed the market down. And then you go ahead and get that rise up. But the rise up really, I don't think was a direct result of the Fed's balance sheet. It definitely wasn't, oh, great. Now we have more reserves. We can go ahead and lend all this money. It was more so that uh, instilling confidence. So again, your question there, will they keep rates high? Just continue to bail. It depends. You know, if we have this soft landing, then I think they just keep rates where they are. Why, why drop them, right? You've got inflation coming down, you know, 9.1% all the way down to 3%. Uh, 3% probably hover around three, between 2.5 and 3.5 for the next maybe four or five months, something like that. Or really until something significant changes, until we have something that would drive inflation a lot higher, like another CARES Act, STEMI, et cetera, or something that would drive inflation even lower than where it is right now, which would be some sort of black swan event or a hard landing. So I think if we get this soft landing thing, they just keep rates where they are because they're not high. I mean, Rates are just historically average. We've got to remember that. And if unemployment doesn't go up significantly and inflation continues to come down, then yeah, why drop rates? Or why, you know, why not just kind of keep them right around their historic average? That is not my base case. <laughs> my base case is that the stuff hits the fan, just like the yield curve is predicting once it's no longer inverted. And that's uh, really what forces them to drop back down, maybe even to zero. And we'll see how bad it gets. And uh, that's when you get a disinflationary wave taking us back down under 2%. But that's what stokes the next wave of inflation because that's what elicits the response from the government, just like we saw in 2020, 
that is taking effectively low velocity money, turning it into high velocity money and giving us that next round of inflation. And who knows how high it goes? You know, does it go to nine, 10, 12? No clue. I think that's when we get price controls though. But it's the same thing that you saw in the 1940s, this waves of inflation, same thing in the 1970s, didn't go up in a straight line. It never, ever, ever, ever does. And, but this time I think it's far more predicated upon government. It's far more predicated upon the central planners when in the 1970s, uh, and again, my good friend, Lynn Alda has done a ton of work on this. You see that the majority of money supply increase above and beyond GDP was really coming from the banking system. So when you're trying to predict probabilities back then, you would have had much different variables. Or now I think the biggest variable is, is the government doing what they're doing in 2020? If they are, then expect another wave of inflation. If they aren't, then just expect inflation to kind of muddle along where it is right now as far as headline CPI. And if we have a black swan or a hard landing, which is what the yield curve is predicting, then expect inflation to go sub 2%. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out of control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Were you in Cali or was that post with you changing your car in Columbia that, oh yeah, you know what? I didn't realize people might take that as me being in California. No, I was in Columbia. I was, I was in Medellin. I actually bought one of those little electric cars. It's actually a neat little car. It is. Uh, I don't think they have them in the States, but I didn't even, I'd never even actually, I take that back. I saw one when I was in Italy, maybe in 2014, I, I was in Rome or Milan or something like that. I remember seeing one. I didn't know what the heck it was. It was a little Renault Twizy. But then when I went to St. Bart's during the Cerveza sickness to get a little bit of freedom there and hang out with my good buddy, Hugh Hendry, uh, th- that was like their main rental car. It was perfect for St. Bart's. So I actually drove one around for a couple months there. I really loved it. And here, if you've ever been to Medellin, you know that parking is just a pain in the butt. And the parking spaces are very small. They're meant for small cars. And I've been trying to rehab my shoulder. Most of you guys know that I I had a really bad shoulder injury a couple months ago. And part of that rehab process is I'm trying to go to the the boxing gym in the morning and just work out that shoulder just to to get the movement going. But the parking is a pain in the neck. So I had my assistant go out and buy one of these little twizzies. And they're just a little, well, they've got two seats, but they're they're not side by side. They're, they're, they're back in front. And it's just a little, t- it's actually considered an electronic bicycle it's called a, uh, a quadricycle, something like that. But no, long story short, I actually bought that for Medellin, but then I didn't have power in my garage, in my parking garage 
So I had, to, <laughs> I had to go out and buy a gas generator in order to charge my my damn Twizy, which I thought was obviously ironic there. You know, that's why I did that little video uh, saying, you know, you're sitting here trying to save the earth and, 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 you know, you're trying to battle climate change and you're trying to be green. And at the end of the day, you've got to go out and run a gas generator to run your electric car. <laughs> and one thing that was funny that I didn't mention in that video, the the exhaust that's put out by that little generator is like, <laughs> so you're sitting there breathing all this exhaust <laughs> while, while you're charging your, your green uh, Greta Thornburg car or whatever. So anyway, that was the backstory. And if you guys want to see that video, it's just a little quick one on Twitter that I posted the other day. If you had a million dollars in cash, wanted to move outside, where would you go? Well, first of all, I would diversify that that cash for sure, man. I'd have a lot of that cash in T-bills. But then with the, the, the dry powder that I wanted outside of that, I would have multiple bank accounts in multiple jurisdictions for the reasons we just discussed. But then as far as where would I go just to live, I'm, I'm doing it. Medellin. One, let me give you some real numbers. When I was in the United States, and when I remember when I was saying I retired and I was trying to make enough money to uh, subsidize my expenses, back then my expenses were right around fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a month. Those are my expenses, and this was uh, two thousand twelve. To have that type of lifestyle here in Medellin, it would require. 3000 a month, 4000 And if you have $5,000, let us say, a month, if you're making $60,000 a month living in Medellin and you're making dollars, you are living, you're, you're living like almost like a billionaire. And I, I'm not joking. Now, you're not flying around in private jets or anything. But in that case, you would have a private chef. You would have a, a maid that would come to your house every single day, do all the cook, all the cleaning and go to the grocery store for you. You would be able to allocate pretty much 100% of your time on being productive, whatever that meant for you, or leisure, or however you want to spend your time. Just like you would if you were making, let's say, $100,000 or $200,000 a month in the United States. So that, you know, a million bucks back, in, at, back home, that's not that much. But a million dollars, if you could just make a 5% return on that and get, again, let's just say four, four grand a month, you're, you're, you're done. You're done. You could live like a king here in Medellin and not that you'd want to live that way the rest of your life and not that you want to be here for the rest of your life, but it just buys you three months, six months, a year, however long you want to spend here till you figure out your next move. And the things are very, you know, it's very it's a very pleasant place to spend time. Very safe. You know, I don't worry about the safety. That's not an issue. But the, bo- the, the president is a psychopath. I mean, he's a good buddies with, or was good buddies with Chavez and with Maduro and Carrera, who was in Ecuador. Basically, these socialist guys. And so he is a, a wild card. So far, he hasn't done anything major. So let's just hope that it stays like this for the next two or three years until they have elections and get him out. He doesn't do too much damage. But uh, look, the problem with the world right now is no place is perfect. All, you know, on this, on these live streams, I get questions. Oh, George, where would you go live as though, you know, where would you set up a permanent spot to be the next 10 years? Nowhere. 
You, you cannot make that decision in the world right now. It's too tumultuous. Things are changing too quickly. I mean, just look at what we lived through in 2020. Like you could have gone to Mexico. You could have gone to all your, whatever your hot spots are, as far as where you would like to set up a plan B, you could have been there and you still would have been under the exact same stupid lockdowns unless you were in Sweden, Tanzania, or St. Bart's. Those are pretty much the only three places that I know of on the planet earth where you, you weren't locked in a cage for heaven's sakes. So, and who knows if we get another, something like that, who knows if we get climate lockdowns, who knows if we get the, it just, the world is changing so fast, and especially with a fourth turning that I think your greatest asset right now is just simply mobility and, you know, setting up a, a kind of bug out spot as, as my good friend, Doug Casey calls it maybe in Mexico. And you know, you don't have to buy a place, but just some place where you'd like to go spend time, set up a bank account there, set up a bank account in Dubai is I think a great place, Middle East, just have some diversification. Not that any of those places are perfect. No, 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 no. They're far from perfect, but at least you're kind of hedging your bets there. And then you can kind of bounce from one place to the other. And if you can't leave the United States, I'm, I'm sure you know, most people are in that position, then I would definitely have a way to be mobile in the U.S. if you live in an urban area, understanding that in the future, there's probably going to be a lot more social unrest. So other places I might consider, you know, Argentina, I've heard is great right now, cheap. Uh, uh, we talked about Colombia. Mexico is obviously a no-brainer. I'm not too familiar with places in Asia, Obviously, I've heard Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, I've heard is great. And in uh, Europe, I know Croatia is fantastic. I haven't been there in a while. Montenegro, loved it. I've heard from my buddy Andrew Henderson that Georgia, the country, is nice. I don't know. I've never been there personally. But that's where I'd kind of start looking. How long do you think it'll be before GDP for the gap to GDI? I have no idea, James. But I can tell you it's things are going as, as planned. Things are going on schedule or things are happening according to schedule based on history as far as looking at when the yield curve inverts and how long things take to play out. There's, it's never just a, a straight shot down. Things, in fact, usually go up and up and up and up and up just until the point where things collapse. So I, I don't know when that will fill the gap. I have no clue. I know that um, if I'm GI, gross domestic income is what I think that stands for. And I think Lynn set out a chart, I think it was GDI, that she showed that whenever GDI was negative, uh, we had always been in a recession. It was like a 100% thing. And I think it was GDI. And I, I, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to. But I would have to look and see you know, what that relationship is to GDP. I don't know. I don't know. But... I would assume that it will fill the gap or be or, or GDP will go down to GDI when the yield curve starts to steepen by the front end going down, not the long end going up. So meaning the, the two year going back down to the 10 year and living in South Florida says you guys here missed an incredible story on the rebel capitalist channel live streaming. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, like I said earlier, that that's that is not an easy story to tell. <laughs> uh, I just it's hard to tell because it takes me into a very it takes me into a headspace that um, you know whenever you have traumatic experiences from the past or how we were talking, you know, life is that roller coaster ride. There's ups and downs, and whenever you have one of those downs, it, it it's not fun to go back and talk about it because it inevitably brings up some of those powerful negative emotions 
anger and, and sadness and frustration that uh, you felt when you were going through those those events. Um, but it, it's a story that I, I, I wanted to tell uh, because, as you know, I think there's a happy ending. And I think it's something we could all uh, hopefully be inspired by. I know I still use it as inspiration. Um, so I'm glad to see you got some value out of it. And maybe it's a story that I'll, I'll tell more often. I know I've, I've told that story at, at live events and conferences where I've spoken and uh, it's pretty much unanimous. People come up to me and say, out of all the stories I've told, that was by far their, their favorite. So, uh, you know, maybe it's, it, it's, it, it's a little, from a standpoint, I don't know, it's hard for me to articulate the way I feel about it, but I don't know, maybe there's a therapeutic component to it where uh, the more I talk about kind of the, the negative things that happened to me, kind of the Peter Schiff experience that I had, if you will, um, maybe the easier it will be in the future to discuss it and um, the, the, the less of a, a big deal it'll be. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it was, I mean, it's 14 years ago. It shouldn't, it, the, the, the end of the story is always going to be hard to talk about for obvious reasons. But the beginning of the story shouldn't be hard to talk about. So maybe I'll tell it more often just to kind of get over uh, those dark periods that I had in, in my life. But anyway, thank, thank you for the kind words. Can alternate banking be created for all the people who want to exit the banks? Just a great. See, this is something I've been given a lot of thought to. We were talking about this before with what happened to my buddy, Nigel Farage. And, you know, I can tell you, I'm sure most of you don't know Nigel. So you, you kind of see him out there. He's a little outlandish maybe. And you kind of wonder if it's an act. And I've met and I've, I haven't hung out with him a lot, but I, we were hanging out in uh, Mexico city at Andrew Henderson's event. And I had the time, I had the chance to spend uh, a, a couple hours with him and we rode to the airport together and uh, we had some great conversations. He's a good dude. He's a really good dude. So if, if you ever think that, Oh, he may be just doing this for show or something like that. No, he's, he, he at least with me, from what I gathered, you know, just talking to him kind of off the record. And, and when we weren't from the camera or in front of a crowd, very authentic, very genuine, really, really a good dude. So anyway, getting back to your question here, the only, and I'm going to be, I'm, I don't have a, a, a silver bullet. There's no panacea, Juliet, unfortunately, or maybe there is, but I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm going to be continue. I'm going to continue to think about it because it's, it's just such an incredibly important, important problem to solve because I think, unfortunately, many of us will be put into that position over the next 10 years. So people always say, oh, well, duh, Bitcoin, uh, duh, gold, silver. And look, I think you should, in fact, I've always said, you know, the Bitcoin people give me a hard time. They say I'm negative Bitcoin. That's just on Twitter. As you guys that know me on YouTube, you know darn well that I've been, I've spoken positively about Bitcoin since I started the channel in 2019. I've always spoke positively about Bitcoin. Now, I don't, there's different probabilities it'll become the world reserve currency, but I think everyone should own it. Why? Not because it's going to a million or whatever, you know, have fun staying poor. Not for that reason, but have something out of the banking system for heaven's sakes. 
have some sort of purchase. If, if even it goes down, so what? <laughs> it's like an insurance policy, but it doesn't mean that you can exist that way. That's a big, big, big difference, right? And for most people, they, they sure, you could find some Amish community of Bitcoiners where you could do work and your employer could pay you in Bitcoin and you could just spend Bitcoin. But again, that would be living like the Amish. And now that may be an option for a lot of people. But for most people, that, that's not really going to be an option. And uh, now eventually, in let's say 10, 15 years, we could see Bitcoin get to the point where it could be a viable option to, to just not even have a bank account. But I don't think we're going to get to that point prior to a CBDC or prior to them you know, debanking a lot of people, even people who aren't prominent figures. So the only even Band-Aid solution that I can come up with is make sure you've got purchasing power outside the system, like we talked about, gold, silver, Bitcoin, but then also make sure you're diversifying your, your political jurisdictions with your banks, right? So if Nigel Farage had an account in Dubai, he could, he could access that account. He'd have a debit card. He could still pay his bills. And hopefully, you know, I don't know who his employer is, or I don't know how he makes money, but, you know, say he's... Uh, I don't have it as a Patreon or, or a YouTube channel or something like that. He could at least get YouTube to pay his Dubai account, even if he is frozen out of the UK banking system. So that that's kind of a, a temporary placeholder until I can find a better solution. That's um, although I don't know, I'm just thinking through, I, I don't know that I will find a better solution, but that's kind of a placeholder, something you can do to be proactive and take action while we collectively sit back and try to figure out how to solve this problem. When is the next Rebel Capitals Live? May of 2024. It's, it's I think, the end of May. I, I can't remember the exact date, but I know we've already signed the contract with the hotel. It's going to be the same hotel that we were in this year. What are your thoughts on the Fed voting on Friday to raise capital requirements for banks, firms over $100 billion by an aggregate 20%? You know, John, it's one of those things where... 5% of the time, it probably matters. But 95% of the time, it probably doesn't. I would say that about pretty much all the banking regulations. I'm sure they do have unintended consequences because what we're doing is we're taking that out of the hands of the free market, which just uses profit and loss. Probably more importantly, loss. So if you do something stupid, you got a business. But the reason I don't think that will have a lasting impact or why that doesn't really have an impact 95% of the time is because I go back to the reserve requirements. As you know, prior to the Cervasa sickness, the reserve requirements for banks, 10%, most of the banks, uh, some, you know, depending on uh, how big you were, how small you were, whatnot. And I always thought that was a constraint. Even my YouTube channel, when I started it and in 2020, I always, oh yeah, obviously that's a constraint. But then I went back to those some of those statistics that I talked about earlier when the amount of bank reserves, and by the way, the $40 billion that we were talking about earlier, that includes vault cash. That includes vault cash. So you know, the amount of reserves, bank reserves, probably less than $40 billion. My point is, even with a 10% reserve requirement, banks grew their deposit liabilities from $1.5 trillion approximately to $7.5 trillion. And at 7.5 trillion, when they should have had a 10% reserve requirement, they had less than 40 billion. 
And it's not like this happened overnight. So it's just like the regulators didn't catch on. <laughs> this happened from what a, a 25 year period from 1980 to 2007, 27 years. How could they have not caught on to what was going on? In fact, I've read papers in the early 2000s from the Fed stating that the reserve requirements are pretty much nonsense. No one even pays attention to them anymore, although they're still on the books because the banks have just figured out a way around it. So my point there is at, at certain times based on variables, could it impact their decision-making? Yeah, for sure. But 95% of the time, I just, I think the regulators are always going to be behind the curve and the banks are going to say, oh yeah, come out with your little regulation or whatever. And they've already got like 15 ways around it that the politicians or the banksters or the, the people at the Federal Reserve don't even know about. Just like the banks figured out a way around the 10% reserve requirement back in the 1980s. And they did it e almost immediately. And they were doing it right in front of the Fed's face. The Fed even knew they were doing it. And they still didn't care because the Fed deep down, they realize that they don't control much. They like to they, they like to make you think they do for that psychological impact. But at the end of the day, they understand that they don't, or the, the, uh, the banks don't revolve around them. They revolve around the banks. All right, guys, I got to hop over to the rebel capitalist pro live stream. Let's see who we got on. Oh, Peter Froen. Good to see you guys. I know we got a lot of OGs here. Silver Hawk in the house, James MKD elevator mechanic, uh, seven, seven Finn bear, William Almeida, all nighter hider <laughs> in the house. Yeah. Thanks. For, thanks for hanging out with me guys. Wade, Wynn, crypto beauty, art, Vandalay, Christopher Kirwan name sounds familiar. I think they're another OG faith parent, Wayne Smith, definitely name. Oh, RR he's there. Definitely an OG world. You Prussia, Ryan, T-Dub, FNS, another name I remember, Hor Guzman, Watcher Someone Awake, LT. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. See you in the next video.